Good afternoon. It's good to be back. Uh, thankful for the community here for how God has placed us here. It's a unique uh, situation where uh, the community is so much in need of the gospel. And so we, you know, as you take time off and, and come back and you realize that, that God has been gracious in keeping us here. And we pray that uh, the days that he gives us here would be to his glory. And so it's good to be back, and thank you for your prayers. Um, <clears throat> so I want to ask you to open your Bibles back to Joshua chapter 3, uh, w- whether in your book or in scroll or iPad or in your smartphone, because it doesn't matter where it's written as much as we want it to be written in our hearts. So if you will turn back to Joshua chapter 3. And before we look at that, I want you to take about 30 seconds and ask God to speak to you from his word and that you would be a listener. And then I'll pray and then we'll start. (coughs) Father, this is your word and we pray that you would speak to us. Keep us from distraction. Keep me from error. Keep us, Lord, centered and to be able to see the glories of Christ. We thank you again for your word that that your spirit is going to open up and make us understand. We love you, Lord. Thank you again in Jesus Christ, our Lord's name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we're, we've been doing the series in Joshua. We are in chapter 3 today. This is a passage where the nation of Israel, the children of Israel, are crossing over uh, River Jordan. It's chapters 3 and chapters 4, but because it's a big passage, we will only look at chapter 3 today. And the key verse is verse 11. Verse 11 of chapter 3, it says, Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. And that's the key verse. The, the essence of that verse is this, that the covenant-keeping God, who is the Lord of all the earth, is the one who's gone before you into Jordan. The covenant-keeping God, who is the Lord of all the earth, is the one who's gone before you uh, into Jordan. And that, uh, the key idea of this passage, as we will look at, is that the rest from God rests on God. The rest of God rests on God. That is, God who promised rest will be the one who will offer uh, rest. And so this morning, we want to talk about rest. We are a generation that is restless. We live among people who are restless. The top issue is restlessness, lack of sleep, which is leading to anxiety, which is leading to stress. It is said that the top two prescriptions in North America is Valium, which is an, a muscle relaxant for stress, and Antacid, which again is for anxiety. A Fortune magazine says that uh, stress and lack of rest is causing U.S. $411 billion annually. And I'm not sure if you noticed, but the common answer to the question, how are you, is busy. We are people who have uh, overdrawn on our account of rest. Like, we, we, we don't rest. We're like the hamsters on a wheel, constantly running. 
And so the what's in it for me question for us this morning from this passage is this, how do I get this God's rest that he has promised? How do I enjoy this rest that God has promised? Especially as a Christ follower, how is this applicable to, to me? And so I want us to know also that this issue of restlessness is not a modern phenomenon. It's not something that has started because of technology. I know as parents you want to say the stress is because of your smartphone and all of that. But no, this, this restlessness has uh, entered the world when sin entered the world. In Genesis 4, we have uh, in the life of Cain, we see how he epitomizes restlessness. He had just killed his brother Abel, and God confronts him. And God says, you know, the voice of your brother is calling out because his earth is opened out, uh, opened and received the blood, so it's going to be cursed, and you're going to be a vagabond. You're going to be a fugitive. You're going to be restless. And this restlessness because of sin has, has been there from before. And what we have done as men is is we have tried to cope with it. We, we have the spa industry, you know, like it's a billion-dollar industry. Ancient Rome, they, they built this monstrous uh, bath where they would spend time, like hours, to take care of their body, soul, and their mind. But it always fell short. It, it, it never fulfilled because the core of the man was never fulfilled. The core of the man was never satisfied. So this question we must ask is this, like, you know, do I, do I take care of all of those, you know, those things about the body, soul, mind, and all of that, and, and forget what, what is it that God is offering? And I want to suggest to you that true rest comes only in the rest that God offers. And so uh, the, the, um, uh, uh, the preacher, the Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 23, we read this, for all man's days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. There is, this is also vanity, restlessness. We are like the, you know, like the dove that Noah sends out after the flood. The waters had abated, and the dove goes out, and it's trying to find its foot. And it says there, it found no rest. We are, we are those we are a generation of the restless. But thankfully, the redemptive narrative of the Bible is this. It's about how God brings people to find rest in himself. And this passage that we have in front of us is, is like a jigsaw puzzle of, of God telling us how he's drawing people to, to this redemptive rest in himself. And this is the imagery that we find. It's about, it's about rest. But there are certain misconceptions about this crossing of the River Jordan that we have to clarify. You know, I mean, we, we talk about this crossing of River Jordan. There are certain things that we think it means, but I want to uh, draw our attention back to what it ought to be. Uh, one, we thought, we would sometimes think that it's a picture of death. It's a picture of death. But, uh, you know, some of the songs are bad theology. Uh, we, we've got this idea of crossing Jordan as, you know, moving from life to death uh, from the songs that we sing. 
I came across a song which says, Just beyond the river Jordan, there my Savior's face I'll see. Just beyond the river Jordan, a better life is awaiting for me. Now I want to give you two reasons why crossing Jordan is not about death going into heaven. First of all, in heaven there is no sinning, there is no fighting. And though there was much of that in the promised land. There was much uh, fighting and there was much sin. In fact, uh, to such an extent that they had to be exiled. Uh, and so we, we know one of those reasons why uh, it, it cannot be uh, going into heaven. The second is heaven is not the greatest promise a Christian has given. We, in Sunday school, sometimes we are told, you know, you want to go to heaven, believe in Jesus. You see, heaven has become, therefore, the prize money, as it were, to believe in Jesus. But the truth of the gospel is that it's about Jesus. It's about relationship with Jesus. It's about him. It, he is the inheritance. He is the reason we want to be, and where he is, that's heaven. So crossing River Jordan is not an indication of death into uh, into going to heaven, all right? But second uh, misconception is the crossing Jericho is not a picture of baptism. Sometimes we, are, we have heard this, that, you know, it's about now you have saved, now you're crossing River Jordan and being baptized and now live victorious. But I want us to say, Victorious living is not consequential to baptism. You don't live victorious because of baptism. You live victorious because of the transformation that Jesus Christ gives. It's because of the renewal of your spirit during when you're born again. A baptism is only a public declaration of something that's already happened to you. And so crossing River Jordan is not about uh, death. It's not about baptism, but the Bible does speak about this one thing, what crossing of the River Jordan is about. And that we see uh, is that it's about entering God's given rest. And that was the promise that, that God had given the nation of Israel. I want to give you two verses there. Exodus chapter 33 verse 14. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Deuteronomy 12.10, and when you go over Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around you so that you might live safely. He's the one who gives rest. Now, I want us to understand this. It's been 40 years of wandering. 40 years this nation of uh, the children of Israel have been wandering. It only takes 11 days from where they left in Egypt to get to the place where they are. 11 days, but it took them 40 years. So you can understand their desperation. Like, okay, I want this journey to end. Like, I, I really need to get, I want to find this rest that God, God has promised me. But you see, the beauty of the fact is this. You're not the one, or children of Israel are not the one who are so excited about the rest. It is God. We read that in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. He's the one who says, get up and go. I want to I give to you what I promised. God is more keen in drawing his people to rest than we are to find this rest that God has given. And... And so when we look at this passage here, I want us to remind four things from 
uh, verse 10 and verse 11. Uh, four things that is essential for us to know uh, before we cross River Jordan. So look with me at verse 10. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know the living God is among you, that he will not fail to drive out before you, and he lists seven nations. Seven nations. And that's beautiful, because whenever you see the number seven, you understand this idea of completeness, this idea of perfectness, this idea that God is promising the children of Israel, that as you cross River Jordan, I'm going to give you this complete victory. It is conditional, but I'm going to give you this victory. Now, the best part about it is it's the same seven nations that Moses had already mentioned in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1. He had mentioned, he said that these seven nations are more numerous and mightier than yourself. That these seven nations who are across the river Jordan, they are more in number and they're mightier than you, but those seven I'm giving them to you. What a promise for the children of Israel as they begin to cross the road. Uh, we looked at it, right? It's, it's not the numbers. It's not your strength that counts. It's God's faithfulness. It's God's strength. It's, it's, for the, it's for God's glory that even though you feel weak, even though you feel few, that he can say this to us, that though they be numerous, though they be greater and mightier, they will be given over to you. So no foe is greater than what God commands. But second, I want you to see this. You see that he is a covenant-keeping God. In verse 11, he says, Behold the ark of the covenant of God. It will be about 700 years when God had given this promise to Abraham. He had said, I'm going to make you a nation. And and, and though it seems like it, there's been a zig and a zag, it seems like, you know, a long time, God fulfills his promise. He's a covenant-keeping God. He fulfills his promise. He, he doesn't seem to act to your time. He's not acting to, to your schedule. You checked off and says, God, on Tuesday, would you answer my prayer? No, he doesn't do that. He acts on his schedule, his time, for his glory. And sometimes it's very difficult for us. But I want you to know that he's a covenant-keeping God who does not break his promise. He gives a word and he maintains it. It's the Ark of the Covenant that's gone before you. But the second thing, but look at the third thing. The third thing, that he is the Lord of all the earth. What a title. He's the Lord of all the earth. He's telling the children of Israel, listen, I'm the Lord of all the earth. I also possess and own the land on the other side of Jordan. There may be seven nations more numerous and greater than you, but I own that land and you can go there and you can possess it because I'm the Lord of the earth. He's the Lord of all the earth. But what gets me is this last part, which it says that God goes ahead of them. It says the Ark of the Covenant, the Lord of all the earth, goes before you into Jordan. He's the God who promised, and now he's the God who leads. He doesn't send a proxy. He's not sending someone else and say, all right, you just go take care of that. But he's the one who leads. Amen. He's the one who leads. He sends Absolutely no one. I, I, I just wanted to get this, all right? So the first reference that we have about the plain of Jordan is the time of Lot. 
You know, the time when Lot and Abraham, they, were, they, were, they had too many cattle, and they, they were having a problem. And Abraham says, all right, you choose a land, and I'll go the other way. And it says there, Lot lifted up his eyes, and he saw the green plains of Jordan and chose it for himself. But he chose it for himself, but it wasn't for him to keep. Because now God brings his chosen people to that chosen land, to a land that they have not seen, but simply by trust and by faith in him who is the covenant-keeping God. And he leads them to the other side. And the book of Joshua does not end without saying how God keeps his word. In Joshua chapter 21, verse 44, and 23 verse 1 it says and the Lord gave rest on every side just as he had sworn to the fathers but we know that this rest was not the perfect rest this rest was not a lasting rest this rest as we saw was conditional and it only lasted till they, the children of Israel, they rejected God and they were exiled out of this land. They did not have a self-rule from like 605 B.C. till as late as 1948. So what is it, how do we understand this idea of rest that God is talking to, to the children of Israel and as a result, as we apply it to ourselves, what does that mean to us? The idea of rest. And, 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 and so for that, we'll have to turn to Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4. So will you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3 and 4? We'll, we'll see this briefly, but this is where we get our application. This is where we will understand what is it that God is trying to tell us about rest. Okay, so Hebrews chapter 3 and, and chapter 4, the Hebrew writer is answering for us this question about rest. Now, chapter 4 of Hebrews is the most concentrated uh, teaching, if you will, about this idea of rest, okay? So, chapter 3, we find uh, there are two groups of people. One group of people who were not able to cross into River Jordan, and another group of people who crossed over into River Jordan. And so, we will look at these two and try and and understand what is it that it means to us, all right? So the first one are the ones who were not able to cross over into Jordan. From uh, chapter 3, verses 6 to 19, we don't have time to read that, but if you want to go back and read it, I'm going to read only verse 19 for us. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Also, chapter 4 and verse 2, it says, they were not united by faith with those who listened. They were not able to enter because of unbelief. Because of unbelief, they were not able to enter. They were not united by faith with those who listened to God's word. That's the reason why they were not able to enter. Now, the question we have to ask ourselves is, what is this unbelief? Like, how do I understand? How do I apply this to myself? What is unbelief? Now, I want us to understand this one thing, that when I say unbelief, it is not about not believing anything. Because we always believe in something. Take the example of Adam and Eve. Their sin was a sin of 
unbelief. But not that they didn't believe anything or anybody. They believed the serpent. What they did not believe was the word of God. They did not believe the promise of God. They did not believe God, but instead they believed the serpent. And that's what is unbelief. Belief in this context, belief for our understanding is to do with God. What do we do with God's word? How do we treat God's word? That's unbelief. And so how does that show up in our lives? And I, want you, I, want us, I want us to go through three things. How does this apply to us? The first one is the yes, but. The yes, but. Because unbelief is believing a lie. And the first one is the yes, but. I believe this is what God is saying. Yes, this is what God is saying. This is his promise, but. But you don't understand my situation. You don't understand I'm just a human. Yes, I know that is what God is saying. But you, like my, you don't know my past. The yes, but of unbelief. The yes, but where we're saying that no, it is not, it is not, uh, it's okay for everybody else, but not for me because I am, I'm unique in the situation. The yes, but. I want to ask you this one thing. Since when has the efficiency of God's promises depended on your situation? When has his promise delayed or when has his promise been affected because of your circumstance? His promise is dependent on his faithfulness, not on your lack of, of being able to put life together. And that's why we need God's promise. So yes, but doesn't work for us. But look at the second one. What if? The what if, the problem of what if. We fear the what if. What if, 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 if I'm crossing River Jordan, what if all the waters are going to come rushing back at me? What if? What if God is still upset with me because of, because of a sin of my past? What if there is something that God is still holding on to me? What if? What if? I want you to understand this, why this is a sin. It's because the focus is on the, on the unbelief of yourself rather than the belief on God. You have said about yourself that you don't believe for certain things or whatever it is. It's the unbelief on yourself rather than belief on God. His promises stand in spite of us. But not just yes, but... Not just the what if, but the so what. That's the dangerous ground. The so what. You know God has said that, but you say, so what? You, you, you know this is what God says, and he says, I know people are the ones who judge when I do things, but God understands, you know, he, he, he's not going to strike me dead. Nobody's died sinning or going against God. I want you to understand this one thing about Moses. The reason Moses was not able to enter the promised land, we read in Numbers chapter 20, verse 12, is that he did not hold God as holy. He did not hold God as holy. He, he did not, he did not, he, you know, when this is the situation where God had told him about speaking to the rock, and he goes and strikes it twice. He was upset with the people. He had every reason to be upset with the people. He had every reason to, you know, uh, 
to have lost, not be clear thinking at that time. And, and God says, no, you're not going across River Jordan because you didn't treat me as holy. Unbelief happens when we treat things of God as not as precious, not as holy, when God is not glorified through our words or deeds or actions. The so what. But there's also another way of looking at unbelief in this passage in verses 8 and 9, 8 to 10, 8 and 10, sorry. It's about not bringing the knowledge in our minds to rest in our hearts. Not bringing the knowledge in our minds to rest in our hearts. Verse 8, it says, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. It talks about hardened hearts. And verse 10, the latter part, it says, they will go astray in their heart. It talks about a straying heart. Now let me explain this with you, uh, explain this with an ex- illustration. We, we were doing this series from uh, John. In John chapter 11, the Lord was four days delayed. Lazarus had died. And when he comes to Bethany, Martha comes up to him and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that whatever you ask, the Lord will give. God will answer. And so Jesus says, your brother will rise again. And Martha says, I know. I know that he will rise again on the last day. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and life. If anyone believes in me, they will live again. Do you believe? And Martha says, Lord, I believe. You see, what has happened there? I want you to know this. There were things that she knew. I know, I know. How many times when we're going through difficult times, a well-meaning brother, a well-meaning sister comes along and tries to share with you and say, this is what God's word is saying. And you say, I know it. Don't need to tell me. I know it. Why are you telling me? You see, because knowledge in your head doesn't save you because this knowledge needs to become belief in your heart. It needs to find its rest in its, in its heart. You need to know that this word of God can be leaned on, trusted on, that what God says is true. It's not just for knowledge. And that's what Martha understood. Because Jesus didn't come all the way to tell Martha what she knew. She already knew. Why did Jesus have to come all the way? He has done miracles at a distance. But he comes to bring that knowledge from the head down to the heart. We lose, we have this unbelief when this knowledge doesn't find its rest in our heart because when he finds its rest in your heart you are willing to stake your all on the promise of God on the word of God and so all those who did not believe were not able to enter God's rest we have to ask ourselves this question has unbelief prevented us from enjoying God's rest. That's the exhortation of chapter 3 and chapter 4. The Hebrew writer is saying, he's giving us the example of these people who, because of unbelief, were not able to enter rest. And he says, don't be like that. Hope that doesn't happen to you. 
that because of unbelief, we're not able to enjoy God's rest. Then there are those who did enter the promised land. They were allowed a taste of God's rest. But unfortunately, they equated the possession of land. They equated real estate as their final source of rest. The possession of land. We, we do that sometimes, you know, I don't know, if you have a fancy car or a fancy house or something, we, we think God has blessed you. Oh, God has blessed you. And we, we, we assume that to be this ultimate. We, we, we link our blessings, our rest, our final, you know, the, 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 the level that we need to reach through the blessings that God has given us, through those physical blessings that God has given us. But it is not, you see, because... Because this nation of Israel, the children of Israel, they, they thought land is what was important. They rejected even the Messiah. They rejected the Messiah because they thought this Messiah is going to come. He's going to overthrow the Roman government and establish the divine kingdom. But he doesn't do that. And so they reject him. For Jesus, it wasn't about the land. It was something greater. And so they needed to understand that this rest, this rest into the promised land was just an imagery of something greater that God is saying. That's the emphasis of Hebrews in chapter 4, verses 7 to 9. 7 to 9, it says, for today, again he appoints a certain day, today saying through David, as long Afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as did God also. You see, the idea is this, that this rest of moving into the promised land is just a imagery of something that God wants to show to his people about this true rest that is found in himself. And so the, the question then we have to ask is what, is, what is this rest that God has promised his people? How do we understand? What is this rest, right? <clears throat> Now, want us to understand one thing, that it is not about losing salvation. It's not about losing salvation because salvation is not dependent on your faithfulness. It depends on God's faithfulness. And also the phraseology there is about entering God's rest, not about losing God's rest. So there is something else that is being said, and I, uh, that, is, that needs to be cleared. The Hebrew writer actually uses four or five different ways of this rest. So there is uh, a lot of discussion about what is the Hebrew writer saying. And I think what Constable is saying is probably the best explanation. And he says the rest is about enjoying our inheritance in God, about the best that God has to offer both here and the after. And so one of the reasons why I think why there is this varieties of Christian, why is it that if you become a Christ follower, it is not necessary that you have found that rest? Now, I want to suggest to you that it may be because 
of this inability to believe. Faithlessness. Even though you have faith in the salvation, the salvific faith is this sanctifying, this everyday trust that we um, have a problem with. And there's also not just that, but there's also something into the future. Abraham understood that. We read about it in Hebrews chapter 11 that Abraham living in the promised land, he lives in tents because he wasn't just satisfied with that promised land that God had given. He was looking forward to a city which had foundation, the architect and the designer was God himself. And so I want us to understand, first of all, that this rest, this true rest is 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 spiritual, first of all. It's to do with the inner man. It's to do with something that is happening in your heart before it can be any of the other things. And if the thing on the inside, the heart on the inside is not changed, then we have a problem. You see, we saw with Cain, because of sin entering, there was restlessness. Sin came and rest was taken away. And for now rest to come, sin needs to be taken away. You have to address. You see, that is the essential component. We, we, we have understood. You see, when you read the Bible, the redemptive story of the Bible is this, that God gave us a choice, and in our choice, we sinned. We did what we think was right, and we turned against God. And we lost this relationship, this rest that we would have in God. And the story of the Bible is how God constantly draws us back to himself and again and again through various interventions because he's leading us to this one person, this one person called Jesus Christ in whom is all the rest. He is the one who came and says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. I'll give you rest. Every other rest just pales or are just signposts at best pointing to Christ in whom we have this rest. And in chapter 4, verse 7 of Hebrews, we saw that this invitation is still open. This invitation is still open. It is not just the rest that Joshua gave to the children of Israel, but the rest found in Jesus Christ is available for us today. It's available for you who have not believed in Jesus Christ ever before. You haven't understood that he is God who came down as man, who died on the cross for you, and that by saying that, yes, I know my sins have been forgiven because he took them upon himself. I trust him. I believe him that I can find my rest in him. That's the amazing story of the gospel. But for us who know the gospel, who know the salvation story, and yet every day we have to draw back and say, Oh, Lord Jesus, apart from you, there is no other place I can find my rest. Not in the blessings that you've given me. Not in the position, not in the career advancement, not in a family relationship, nothing else, oh God. My trust is on you. You are the one who gives me true rest. You are the priority of my life. You're the Lord of my life. It must be Christ alone. He is the one who gives the rest which is lasting 
and complete. But just as we saw in the key verse in, in um, Joshua chapter 3, verse 11, we saw how Jesus has gone before, sorry, how, how God had gone before them into Jordan. We see that our Lord Jesus Christ has gone before. We read that in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. We see that since then we have a great high priest who has gone, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Just as our key verse would say that the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth has gone ahead of you into Jordan, our King, our Joshua, because the, the meaning of the word Joshua is Jesus. Jesus meaning God saves. He's the one who saves. He has gone ahead of us, and because he's gone ahead of us, we see the same pattern being repeated the same imagery we know that this assurance of rest is is guaranteed in Christ Jesus he becomes our basis of rest he alone must be our rest we have no rest apart from that all other rest will fall apart Christ alone Christ is our Joshua Christ is the one who becomes a new leader, who takes us through River Jordan. And it says there that the waters were parted from Adam till Arabah, which is the salt sea. Whether it be from Adam till the end of the generation, anyone who trusts in this new leader, the Lord Jesus Christ, are, can find their rest in him as they cross over with him. And the, the wonderful part of how chapter 3 ends is this is how it says here in verse, three, in, uh, verse 17. Sorry, now the priest bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firmly on ground in the midst of Jordan and all Israel passing over on dry ground until all, just mark this, until all nation finished passing over the Jordan. This is the first time the children of Israel have been addressed as a nation. As they cross over, the promise that was made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, that I will make you a nation is fulfilled as they move on. And you will find the complete fulfillment in Christ Jesus alone. May he be your king. May he be your leader. May he be your Lord. May he be the one who is the Lord of all the earth, the covenant-keeping God who has passed on before us and that we will joyfully follow him. May his name be glorified. Father God, we want to thank you for your son, our Joshua, the one who leads us ahead, the one who gives us rest. We often become weary, O oh Lord. We become tired. We are so uh, uh, tired and, and busy, caught up. But we thank you that as we align, as we see that in Christ we can find our rest. As we strip ourselves away of rest in everything else, and we solely rest on you. You, O God, has said that you will give us a peace that passes all understanding, a peace that says that in spite of the terrors around us, in spite of the fact that a thousand will fall ar around us, that you will keep our foot from, from slipping, and you will bring us to yourself to find our final rest in you and forever. 
We want to thank you. We want to thank you. We want to thank you for the guarantee of this promise in Jesus Christ. We love you, Lord. Thank you for loving us so much. In Jesus Christ, our Lord's name, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.